please, to John chapter 6. In the book of John, as we've been going through in this chapter, John skips forward in the story of Jesus' ministry, probably almost an entire year prior to this. Uh, John has been building on this theme of Jesus being the Son of God. And he continues to do that, which is why he skips forward. John is uh, writing this gospel, this good news, later than the other uh, gospels were written. And so he has somewhat of a different focus in mind than the rest of the Gospels. And it's in this chapter that we read uh, the only miracle that is described in all four of the Gospels, actually. John doesn't really have any desire to go back and reiterate things that have already been written, already been taught about the life of Jesus in the other Gospels. He has more of a big picture message that he wants to get across by telling the story of Jesus, rather than just saying, here is the story of Jesus and his life, and this is good news. He says, no, I want to tell you this story so that you may believe, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so he chooses very particularly the things that he's going to tell us in the story of Jesus' life. He's not simply trying to give a whole beginning-to-end story. He's trying to put that story into a broader message, and that message is one of life for those who believe. But it's also one of contrasting two different kinds of belief. Throughout the book, we've seen so far that there is the kind of belief that leads to life eternal life in his name. And there's the kind of belief that many people had had, and and we continue to see this in the rest of the book, there's this kind of belief that Jesus condemns and says doesn't bring any life. And this is something that it's hard for us to accept today because we just want there to be this one kind of belief. Well, you say the name of Jesus, you say you're a Christian, boom, the magic wand has been shaken, and you're in the camp that has life eternal in his name. But Jesus is very clear, John is very clear in telling the story of Jesus' life, that Jesus distinguishes between two groups who actually believe. There are those who believe by faith, and there's, there are those who believe, who see what he does, believe that what he's doing is real, know what it means, and yet are unwilling, ultimately, to put their hope in him as the king that he claims to be. They have the desire to make Jesus be something else. So we'll see that in our passage this morning. So again, what John is doing here is he's continuing to build the case that he had been making in chapter 5 that Jesus is who he claims to be, that Jesus is very explicit in claiming to be God the Son. 
And so John begins to give continued proof of that fact. Things that only God could, capable, could be capable of doing. And in this morning's passage, we read a wonderful example of God's provision, his mercy and his compassion on his people in providing food for them for no reason except besides he wants to. And they're hungry in the feeding of the 5,000. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 21. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, Truly, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We see in this passage God's creative power of provision, He provides food. For 5,000 men, not to mention the women and the children. So the size of this crowd is a large crowd. Do we doubt God's kindness? Jesus knew they were hungry. 
And his compassion for them is why he decided to feed them. It's that simple. See the compassion that Jesus has for the people. He sees the 5,000 people coming to him and he says, where are we going to find food to feed these people? And you can, just, you can just imagine the disciples going, this is our responsibility? Since when is it our job to feed vast multitudes of people? Well, it's, it's not, right? This is a new, new idea for them from Jesus. Where are we going to find bread? Well, it's not a new idea because all it is is a continuation of Jesus demonstrating who he is. And who he is, as John is trying to show us, is God himself. But also, his character is one of compassion, one of provision for his people, particularly for those who are in need. This is different than our concept of uh, provision that we want God to have. We want God often to provide for those who deserve, right? Especially in America, there's this, there's this divide between, you know, the deserving people who are receiving gifts of largesse from the federal government or for them, from the state, right? And then there's the people who really don't deserve to receive these gifts. And we have this, this real kind of attitude that, you know, I don't, I don't mind so much them giving to the people who really have need, who really, you know, it's just a bit of bad luck that they're, they're down on their luck and they just, need a, they just need a helping hand up and I'm okay with that kind of thing. But these people over here who are just, you know, constantly taking advantage of the system, and come on, give me a break. But in this case, we see Jesus providing food to this large crowd who followed him, and what should the crowd have done? If they wanted to eat, they should have what? Brought food. It's not that they deserve this food, you understand that? What have they done to deserve this food? Nothing. Now, don't hear me saying more about what the United States federal government or the state of Ohio should do. I'm not saying that. I just want to get in your mind that God is different than our conception of what provision looks like. God's character is revealed in Jesus Christ. And his character that's revealed is one that provides not to those who deserve not to those who are just down on their luck for a little bit, all right? but his character is one of provision out of the love and compassion that he has for them. That's all that it flows out of. It's not anything to do with those people. What they've done or not done, how they deserve it or don't deserve it. It's simply on the basis of his love that he decides, we're going to feed this crowd today. And so he turns to one of his disciples. He turns to Philip. Philip just happens to be the man who was from this area. 
Okay, so if you go back and you, you read about Philip, you, you realize, oh, hey, Philip is, this is like his home area. So Jesus looks at him, the guy who's from there. It's like going to the person who's, you know, from down on the other side of the river. You're down on the other side of the river, down in Kentucky, right? And you look at somebody who's from Kentucky, where's a good place to eat around here? Why do you do that? Well, because they're from there. So he says, where are we going to find food for all of these people? And of course, the answer is, you can't, you can't get bread for this many people here. There's a little town. There's, and not to mention the fact that we don't have enough money, Jesus. Even if there was enough bread in this whole region that was made right now, we can't, we can't just go and buy it. We don't have the money for it. If we spent all of our money, if we spent 200, what does he say in verse 7? 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And so God's character is displayed in Jesus, and more than that, God's creative power is displayed in Jesus here. This is the point, really, of the story. It's to demonstrate that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is God. Some of the things that get in our way, like I said, if we doubt the kindness, the compassion of God, well, another one is we can doubt his ability. And the disciples clearly doubt the ability of Jesus here, don't they? They doubted there was any way that Jesus could supply this need. But God demonstrates his power of provision in this event very creatively. I like telling people that God is more creative than them. God is more creative than you. God is more creative than me. And I mean that in two senses, and we see that in in both ways here in this passage. Since nothing is impossible for Jesus, since nothing is impossible for God, he thinks outside our impossible boxes. Okay? Therefore, he's more creative The choices that he has before him are infinite. Like a child's ideas that we dismiss as impossible, right? We look at, we see see a child saying, oh, you know, here's an idea of something we could do. We could build a wooden car in the basement and put an engine in it and drive it around. And you're thinking, I mean, I know you're six and all, but come on. This is impossible, right? This is silly. This is the way we look at, this is the way we look at children who propose the impossible. Well, we could do this, or this could happen. What if blah, blah, blah? Don't be ridiculous. Don't be silly. 
But that's the kind of creative that's that's the kind of creative that God is possible has has a possibility in front of him. None of that stuff is impossible in God's eyes, right? That's creativity that's not hindered by the bounds of possible. And so, as we mature, as we grow up, then our our bounds of creativity get smaller and smaller, don't they? As we learn what's possible and what's not possible. We begin to be realists. And you can still be creative, but you've got to be creative within the bounds of reason. Of within, the, within the box of possible. And so we talk about thinking outside the box, but we never mean think outside the box in terms of what's impossible. When you're at a, you're a brainstorming meeting at work, right? And they're like, all right, let's, let's all get together and think about how we could attack this problem, solve this. I, you know, we need some new ideas. Let's everyone try to think outside the box. And somebody's like, I know. Let's print a million dollars. That would take care of everything. You're fired. Go away. You are useless to this. This is not brainstorming. This is not outside the box that I was talking about. This is outside the box of reality. Just shut up and go away. That's not the kind of creative we want, and yet that's the kind of creative that God has at his disposal. That's the kind of creative we see with Jesus here. I know. Let's take the five barley loaves and the two little bitty dried fishes, and then let's just... Let's just divide them and break them up and hand them out to everybody until they're all full. Really? That? Yes, really. That's what I'm going to do, says Jesus. I did it. Jesus did it. Outside that bounds of possible. And so he can be more creative than you can ever possibly be, can't he? Isn't that a beautiful thing? That God has as everything comes before him, and and as you see it, it's impossible for there to be any kind of solution for any good to come out of the situation that you're facing. But as Jesus sees it, as God sees it, Nothing is impossible. And indeed, that's the promise of God. Nothing is impossible with God. But he's also creative in another way in this passage, and that is creative in the truest sense of the word. Creating something from nothing. When you take a little piece of bread and you break it, and you break it, and you break it, and there's eight times as much as when you started, that's creating. That's creative power, isn't it? It's a miracle. Again, it demonstrates John's point that Jesus is the creator God, just like he claims to be. The prophets had these sorts of signs given to them as proof that God was speaking through them, right? You think of Elijah and the widow and pouring out the oil. 
And she sells the oil. Well, the oil multiplied just like this, right? And why is that story given to us? Well, it's given to us to demonstrate that God is at work in this world. And to demonstrate that Elijah is his prophet, his, the one who is speaking his words. And so when Jesus speaks and then backs up his claims with signs like this, it's proof to everybody who is there that the claims that Jesus is making are true, that he is speaking from God. Jesus' words are proved, and what are his words? Well, the difference between him and Elisha and Elijah and the other prophets that had similar kinds of miracles performed by God through them is that Jesus' word is, I am. Jesus' word is that he is God. And so when earlier in John... Nicodemus comes to him at night and says, we know you're from God, for nobody could do these, perform these signs unless he was from God. What that leaves us with is a choice. Either we reject both his word and his signs, or we accept both his word and his signs, just like the prophets of old. We don't have the option of accepting that his signs are proof that he's from God and then rejecting the words that he speaks from God. You understand? Either the signs are proof or they aren't. And and again, the whole point that John is giving us these stories is to prove who Jesus is so that we would believe and that believing we would have life in his name. That right kind of belief, right? And so Jesus is creative here. He controls what he created. We get inured to these stories, to to the miracles that we read about, but you know, you ought to you ought to approach these as a child. When you hear about uh, when you hear about Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish, you ought to go. That's awesome. I love this story. And the and the more of an adult you are, the more you should be shocked, and then revert to childlike faith. Because your adultness is what, dem- is, is what gives you the ability to discern how unusual this is. The five-year-old sees this as a matter of course, right? Oh, yeah, and then there was lots more bread than there was before. And, and they just see nothing unusual in that because the world is amazing to a five-year-old. Everything is miraculous, If you think about a baby growing up, and a five-year-old is watching this, right? Their younger sibling. Or they're seeing... What kinds of things are you seeing as a five-year-old in your short little life? 
And then we got into a plane and we flew across the country to the other side of the world. It's miraculous, but it's not miraculous to an adult, right? Because we understand the physics and we've been through science. And, but really, you think about getting on a plane and flying halfway across the world, and you ought to be shocked by that. But not half so shocked as you should be when you hear that Jesus performed the miracle of feeding thousands and thousands and thousands of people from a couple of loaves of bread and fish. And so your adultness ought to look at the story and go, whoa. And then you ought to look at it like a child and say, well, of course, he's God. This is just as, this is just as normal as the fact that babies turn into adults. Of all the crazy things in the world to happen... And of all the crazy things in the world to happen, that God would choose to take sinners and to make them his children and to forgive them for, them, for their sins and make them sons of God to live forever, this is miraculous. And if you think that that's impossible, then you haven't looked at this story of Jesus controlling his creation. Making something from nothing. Adjusting the space-time continuum at will. Are you following me? They got in the boat and they're rowing three or four miles and then Jesus is walking on water. That's just sort of a throwaway comment in this story. Jesus was walking on the water, but they were scared, mind you, and I would be too. And then they let him in the boat and then what? And then suddenly they were at their destination. This is like what you get up and you are telling a dream to your, you know, man, I had this dream last night. You wouldn't believe it. It was so weird. All this crazy stuff was happening that can't really happen in real life. That's this story. I didn't know what we were going to do. We had thousands of people show up for the party and I was in charge of it. I was, and, and then... I was like, well, I don't know. I guess I'll just start giving them bread. And I just kept giving them bread. And then at the end, they all ate. And there was leftovers. You wouldn't believe it. It was the weirdest dream. And then we were... And then it did one of those weird things where all of a sudden you're somewhere else, you know? You guys recognize this? The point isn't so that you think, oh, well, this is just a big fantasy. Only an idiot would write down a dream as if it was true and try to pass it off as reality. You understand? The beauty in this story is that it's a miracle. That Jesus is demonstrating how much he's in control. He's demonstrating his creative power that he is God. And so do we believe his words? <clears throat> Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? What does he say he is? Well, God. And so, you know, well, yeah, I mean, I believe Jesus is God, yeah. 
do you worship him? Do you worship him as he says he is, not as you have made him in your mind? This is the difference between the two kinds of belief. Here you have, it's impossible, you guys, it's impossible for this crowd not to believe in him. They have just been fed by him miraculously. They know this is from God. Only God can do this. They know it just as well as you would know it if you saw it happening. They're all sitting there orderly in groups. And what? Jesus started digging in a hole behind him where he had hidden the, the bread? No. There's no trick going on here, and they all know there's no trick going on here. They all know it's from God, and yet, what does it say Jesus had to do? Jesus had to go and hide himself from them because they were intending to come and make him king by force. What is that? Well, that's them saying, yeah, you're God, and now I'm going to make you the kind of God I want you to be. Yeah, I believe in you. I believe in you being this way. The way that I want you to be. And that's the difference between believing in Jesus in saving faith and believing in Jesus in a way that is useless to you and condemns your soul to hell. When we remake Jesus into the God that we want him to be, We do not believe in a way that we have life in his name. We see this contrast over and over again in the book of John. Next week we'll get further into this where the people come and they they chase after Jesus. And Jesus condemns them. This crowd that clearly believes in him, that wanted to make him king. So how do we make Jesus be something besides who he claims to be? How do we remake God in our own image, in this idea of our likeness, what we like, what we want him to be? This happens, and it's very tempting for all of us. It's very tempting for us to put our faith in a different kind of Jesus than is revealed in the Bible. Anytime you hear somebody say, well, the God that I worship would never blah, 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 you know what they're saying is, I have made God in my image. It doesn't matter what comes after that. The God that I worship wouldn't wouldn't blah, blah, blah. They're placing themselves as the creator, the definer of what God is. Do you see that? And of course, inevitably, what comes as blah, blah, blah are things like, would never condemn somebody to hell who hasn't heard the good news yet, who hasn't had an opportunity to believe. Would never make somebody who wants to sin in this way 
The God that I, the God that I worship would never. And it's all of these, it's all of these ways that we just, we just decide, oh, well, I'm going to pretty Jesus up. I'm going to make him be the way I want him to be. I'm going to make him king by force of my own will. Do we have any ability to make Jesus king? No, he is king. God the Father makes him king. And he makes him the kind of king that he is supposed to be. The Jews were adamant he needed to be an earthly king. Not the king of God's kingdom. The king of the Jews' kingdom. They own it. They determine what it's going to be like. He's going to be a king that, overrules the Ro- that overthrows the Romans, or they're not going to worship him. And this is what we do with our, with our expectations that we bring to Jesus. We have these demands that we come to him with. And we say, look, Jesus, either you're going to be this kind of Jesus, or I don't like you. I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea of a Jesus that does this. So you better not be that way, Jesus. And what are those demands? Well, let's just talk about provision, because this is a story of God's provision, right? We've got him feeding the 5,000. Let's talk about how he provides. We won't go off into, we could, we could spend forever on this topic, but let's just talk about provision. Here, Jesus provides for the crowd of 5,000, right? He provides food for them. Not something that they deserve. So how do we deal with Jesus providing? Are we willing for him to be the way he says he is? Let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a different crowd on a different mountain. In, in chapter 6, he's in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to read a few verses near the end of the chapter, starting in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
blessing that the people in our passage in, Matthew, in John receive, the, peop, the, the blessing that Jesus promises here in Matthew chapter 6, comes about through obedience by faith. Okay, it comes about through obedience by faith. The disciples do what Jesus says. Jesus says, have the people sit down in groups. And so the disciples have the people sit down in groups. There's no earthly reason to expect food at this time, is there? What possible way is there for God to provide food at this moment? And yet, the disciples trust Jesus to do what is good and right, even if they're not sure exactly what that will look like. And it's true, they're not sure what it's going to look like, are they? All they know is, well, Jesus said have the people sit down in groups, so I guess I'll have the people sit down in groups. And the people sit down in groups. They obey. And they obey believing that Jesus will do good. That's why the people are following him. They're following him because they had seen the works that he had been doing. That's what our passage says. And so they trust him to do good. Even if they don't really trust him to provide at that moment the way that he can, they obey by faith still, trusting that he will do good. Do you see the mixture of failure and faith in this? Of sin and obedience? I mean, you, you have to see it in, these, in the disciples. They're like, there's no way. I mean, there's no way. But, okay, onward we go. He said, have the people sit down. We'll have the people sit down. Now, of course, the contrast isn't perfect obedience and then sinning. Remember how I said it's all mixed up? You see the sin and the faith and the obedience all mixed up together in here? The contrast is with trying to claim by force what you think God wants to give you. Making demands of God Verse 15, Jesus saw they intended to make him king by force, but they don't get what they want. He doesn't provide them what they don't need. He provides them what they do need. He provides for them according to his promises. And so this week, there's no reason, aside from the fact that they're hungry and Jesus is compassionate, that they get any food. And yet, in, in, in our next passage, we see that when they try to extort food from Jesus, he doesn't give them food. We'll study that next week. So what do we learn from this? Well, our own obedience by faith, along with asking, is the way to receive blessing from his hand. His compassion and love are on his children to provide for us. 
Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And so this is a story that is meant, as John said, to cause us to believe, and that believing we have life. Well, believing, having faith, this is what John desires for us. And so when Jesus rebukes the people in Matthew for worrying, he says, you have little faith when you worry. And when... On the other hand, we decide we're just going to take it by force. Well, I know Jesus, you know, look, Jesus provided food, so I guess I'm just going to, you know, I need to, get, I need to make sure I get what's mine. This is just what Jesus would want me to do. That also is faithless. There's two different extremes, there's lots of other extremes that we could fall into, but we see these two here of disobedience, of not living by faith, of, say, of not having any trust that God will provide. He says he'll provide for his children. He says he'll clothe you. He says he'll provide food for you, right? And then we sit and we worry. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, what's it going to be like? Oh, I don't know. And what is that? It's not believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And then on the other hand, trying to take our plan for the future and ram it down God's throat and say, no, this has to be your plan for me, or I'm not going to worship you. No, this has to be the plan for you because I know what's good for me better than you do, God. What is that? It's a different kind of denial. It's a denial that Jesus is who he says to be. It's trying to make him king by force. To get what we want. Our plan implemented rather than his. But who is Jesus? He's God the Son more creative than you, with a better plan than you, and compassionate, providing for your needs. So just do what he says, by faith. That's how you fall, that's how you fall into the path of receiving his blessing. You do what he says, by faith, and you may think this is the craziest thing in the world. I've never done anything this crazy before. But if you're obeying him, trusting him to do good by it, because I don't know how good could come from this. Submitting myself to authority is only liable to end in misery. But God said to do it, and so I'm doing it. And how hard is that? You have to have faith to do that, don't you? And what comes from it? God's blessing. Let's pray.